Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We are in part 11 of our series, The Shabbat and the Mark of God. And today we are going to continue to do some uh, apologetics in regard to the Sabbath. And last week, you know, I mentioned that there was two specific passages that I want to bring to the table. Uh, Both of these passages are found in the New Testament. And both of these passages are being utilized today to prove that Christians today, they no longer need to observe the seventh-day Sabbath. And last week, we looked at the first passage, and we discovered in Colossians 2 that what Paul was addressing there had nothing to do with whether or not Christians should be observing the seventh day as holy, but it had everything to do with what is known as takanot, okay? Rabbinical inordinances, uh, rabbinical commandments, traditions of men that have been placed on top of the Torah or have been placed on top of the Tanakh, all right? Now, today we're actually going to look at the second passage. And this one is actually found in the book of Romans. And interestingly enough, uh, both of these passages, and this will tie in, and by the end, uh, by the time we get to the end of today's sermon, but they're both from the Apostle Paul. In fact, as you look and you start to see uh, the arguments against the Shabbat, what you'll find is it typically centers around the Apostle Paul. With that said, we are going to go to Romans chapter 14, verse 5, and this is what we read. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day... To the Lord, he does not observe it. Now, many Christians will go to this passage and say, see, don't you see what Paul says? The apostle Paul tells us that it doesn't matter what day we keep holy. You know, according to Paul, if I want to keep Tuesday holy, well, that's good enough. If I want to keep Wednesday holy and I want to rest on that day, mazel tov to myself, Right? Nobody should be judging me. And doesn't Paul say, let each be fully convinced in his own mind? This is a personal preference issue now. Now this is just, if I want to keep the whole week holy, so be it. If I don't want to keep any of it, so be it. Don't pass judgment upon me. And this is generally the takeaway from Paul's statement here in Romans. The problem with this interpretation is that nowhere... Do you find anywhere in the passage the term Shabbat or Sabbath used? You don't find any other type of language associated with the Sabbath, such as Holy Day or the seventh day. It's completely absent from the passage in and of itself. And I I can tell you it's completely absent from the entire chapter. Not one time is it mentioned in any way. The only way that you can come to the conclusion that this passage is talking about the Shabbat, is if you insert the word itself into the text, if you read it into the text, and we have a term for this, a term we covered last week. What is that? That is confirmation bias. A confirmation bias. And my clicker, is there a reason? that? There we go. You know... There are so many believers today, without even realizing it, they approach this very passage, maybe others like it, but they approach this passage and their mind is already made up in regard to what they believe 
in regard to the Sabbath. Okay? And the fact that, you know, it's no longer binding. It's no longer required of Christians today. And they read a passage like this one, and it appears to confirm that belief. And therefore, there's no further investigation. The, the preconceived belief, the preconceived notion is the confirmation in and of itself. Okay? Well, in, in the spirit, in the spirit of reopening investigations, that seems to be the theme in the news today, we are going to reopen our own investigation in regard to this very passage. And I, I want to investigate just to see if this passage is saying what typical traditional Christianity says it's saying. That whatever day of the week that we want to keep holy, it, it's in our hands. So let's go to chapter 14, verse 1. I want to go back a little bit. And here's what I want to do. I want to put this entire passage into context, because context can be everything, right? And we're not just going to look at the context of actually what Paul's saying here. We're going to allow him to speak to us. But it's going to be more than that. We're going to get into the historical context. And I think you're really going to appreciate this passage on a whole nother level uh, after today. Well, this is what Paul says, going back and putting this into context. He says in verse 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, I want to stop right here because we're dealing with two different people. We're dealing within the faith. This is not dealing with in the faith, out of faith. This is dealing with two different people within the faith. Believers, both believers. We're dealing with the strong. They believe that they can eat all things. In other words, they can eat meat according to the Torah, according to what's prescribed within the Torah. But then we have another group of people who are weaker in the faith. It doesn't say they're unsaved, they're not saved, or they're lost. It says they're weaker in the faith. And they believe that they can only eat vegetables. They cannot eat meat. All right? Well, Paul says this in verse 3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. In other words, those, these, these meatitarians, if you will, they're not to look upon the vegetarians and despise them. And let not him who does not eat, meaning the vegetarians, judge him who eats, for God has received him. So Paul recognizes there's a serious problem going on here, and he wants to end it. He, he does not want division within the body of Yeshua. He wants to end this, and he recognizes what's going on here. Very passionate beliefs. You know, when we look at the context of Romans 14, right off the bat, what is the context? It's all about food. That's what it is. It's all about believers who embrace the eating of meat versus the believers who have chosen to refuse it. Now, here's where things get really interesting. When you begin to dig into the historical context of this passage, you go back to the first century, you go back to the second century, the days of Paul, and even the following centuries afterward, if you do that, what you realize is this. This issue that Paul is dealing with right here is monumental monumental we kind of live in a bubble of being in this western culture more hellenistic than anything we live in a little bubble and we we, we really are not seeing the broad scope of reality the historical reality of the bible and we're missing important things well this is one of them because this is a massive issue and so i, I really want to 
I want to take you into history and give you a little bit of context so that you can appreciate what is happening because there are emotions that you need to feel. There are passions, there's spiritual connections behind the refusal of eating meat, of why these people have chosen to be vegetarians. And so what I want to do is, is I, I want to take you to some commentary. In the New Testament commentary, we, we briefly uh, touched on him, uh, Dr. Ehrman. And Dr. Ehrman, he's a scholar of the New Testament, but he's not a believer. He gives an amazing commentary on a group known as the Ebionites. Now, we've covered them just a, a little bit. But there's something interesting about the Ebionites that you need to know. And he covers it. And this is what he says. Some of the Ebionites' distinctive concerns were embodied in their gospel. For example, since they believed that Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross had put an end to all animal sacrifice in fulfillment of the Mosaic law, what did they do? They appeared to have abstained from meat. In other words, the Ebionites, they were vegetarians. But here's, real, here's, what's, here's what's important, and this will, this will come into play as we go on, just so that you have a full understanding. Why were the Ebionites vegetarians? It's not about personal preference. It was about a spiritual conviction and their understanding of what Yeshua did. Because read the book of Hebrews, Yeshua came, he died for sins once and for all. And it actually says you get into 10, therefore there is no longer a sacrifice, remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, the Ebionites took that concept and said, well, if that's the case, well, now we're going to stop eating meat. See, because what do we know about the sacrifices? What did the Kohanim live off of? They lived off of the sacrifices. What did the children of Israel, when they came and offered, let's just say, a peace offering? They ate. They ate of the sacrifices. So in saying, well, okay, we're not partaking of that anymore, they took that. In addition to that, they constructed a whole new theology that, well, we're not even going to eat meat anymore since there's no more sacrifices we're not going to eat meat and so this is the reality now he goes on and this is what he says their convictions on this score are evident in their gospel's account of the diet of john the baptist where the canonical statement that john ate locusts and wild honey look at this is modified by the change of one letter i'll get into that in a second so that now John the Baptist, in, in anticipation, the Abionites themselves maintains a strictly vegetarian cuisine, eating pancakes and wild honey. So here's the thing. This is what Bart Ehrman is saying. He says, the Abionites came in and they altered the text to, to literally fit their theology. Okay, and how did they do that? Well, if you look at in the Greek, locusts actually is a crease. Cakes is increase. The minor, minor change. But here's the deal. Now John the Baptist no longer eats locusts, which is considered meat. It's a creature created by the Lord. It's considered meat. They needed John the Baptist. He could not have possibly ate locusts and wild honey according to their convictions, their interpretations. And so what did they do? They start doing, it's a perfect example of a confirmation bias. They start reading into the text something that isn't there so as to confirm the dictates of their heart. That is what is going on here. This is what the, what the Ebionites are getting involved in. 
And you want to talk about confirmation bias. I mean, this is, this is it to the extreme. Where you're altering text, you're reading stuff into a text that's not there. Isn't that interesting? Because in Romans 14, this is what is happening. The Christian church is falling into this trap. They're reading something in the text that does not exist. And they're completely changing the interpretation of the text. Let me take this a step further. You know, with people that give into a confirmation bias, you start to see a pattern. See, because they don't give into it in just one place in Scripture and it's over because it doesn't work that way. When you, when you bear a, a confirmation bias and you're going to the word, what's going to happen is, is there's going to be a pattern that develops because you're going to come up against another brick wall in Scripture that contradicts your theology. And then you got a problem. Then you need to deal with that passage. Well, let me give you a good example of this because the Abionites were not done. They're not done with just this passage. They had to alter another passage. And uh, where I'm going to show you is I'm going to take you to Epiphanius's commentary on the Ebionites. Now, Epiphanius, he's from the 4th century. He's, a lot of people consider him a, a heresy hunter, okay? Uh, and so I'm going to take you to his writings. And this is what Epiphanius says against the Ebionites. And again, the Lord himself says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Now, I just want to stop here because... He's actually quoting Luke 22. He's quoting uh, uh, the term out of Luke 22 where Yeshua is going to eat the Passover with his disciples. And he's recognizing this is what the word says. Now keep in mind, Epiphanius, he was, he was uh, not just trilingual. He, he spoke five languages. Okay? He was brilliant. Okay? And what he's recognizing here is that this is what the Lord said in the scriptures as they had him in the Greek. Okay? With desire of desire to eat this Passover to you. And most of your translations, this is exactly what it says in our translations today. And he did not simply say Passover, but this Passover, so that no one could play with it in his own sense. A Passover, as I said, was meat roasted with fire and the rest, continuing on. But to destroy deliberately the true passage, these people, meaning the Ebionites, have altered its text. Now here we go again, which is evident to everyone from the expressions that accompany it and represented the disciples as saying, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he, meaning Yeshua, supposedly saying, did I really desire to eat meat at this Passover with you? Now that's just because the Abionites are so bent on clinging onto their theology that righteous men of God shouldn't eat meat, they're rewriting scripture all over the place. And what he, what he recognizes, Epiphanius, is what he's saying, this last statement is, this is what the Ebionites say. Did I really desire to eat meat? They completely changed the passage. This is what happens when you get involved in this. So not only do we have here a great example of, of a confirmation bias, But we have it in the context of believers in Yeshua who are passionate about their vegetarianism. Okay, they have this strong spiritual conviction in regard to it. And so the point I want to make here is that this was a real problem. This was a significant problem in Paul's day. And it continued to be a problem for hundreds of years. Let me take it a step even further. This wasn't the only group that subscribed to this ideology if you will there's also another group known as the Nasareans. 
And in its thought, just from Epiphanius's work, it's thought that the Nasireans were actually an offshoot or a sect of, of the Essenes, which was one of the three primary sects of Judaism in the first century, according to Josephus. And so these Nasireans, they also were vegetarians. And I'll just show you this briefly. And so though they were Jews who kept all the Jewish observances, they would not offer sacrifice or eat meat. In their eyes, it was unlawful to eat meat or make sacrifices with it. So they're, doing, they're responding the exact same way that the Ebionites responded. So here you have the Nasarenes doing this. You have the Ebionites. You don't stop there because you also have another group called the Elkasites. They got involved with vegetarianism. Well, don't stop there because now we can get into Gnosticism. The Gnostics were vegetarians. And, and keep in mind this. What was one of the primary influences of Gnosticism? See, because it was not just a product of, if you will, Christianity or Messianic Judaism. It was a product. It had all these influence from paganism, the Orphic cult, vegetarians. The big one, Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, there were vegetarians. And understand, they looked at it this way. As you get into the Gnostics, as you get into the first century, they looked at it as literally shedding the shackles, if you will, of the world. By pushing away meat, I break the chains that the world had upon me by embracing just vegetables. And and really to remove meat from one's diet is to remove ignorance from your life. Now, I want you to understand something. In in Paul's day, in, in the days afterward, to abstain from meat was a esoteric way to salvation. It was an exaltation where literally you were seen more spiritually mature. You were more spiritually, uh, you, were, uh, you, were, you were established on a much higher level because you recognized and pushed out meat, pushed out the ignorance out of your life. And let me say this, there are even groups alive today that still do this. And I don't mean the Gnostic groups. I'm talking groups like the Seventh-day Adventists. And let me preface what I'm about to say because I love our Seventh-day Adventist brethren. Um, wonderful people and uh, show lots of love. Don't necessarily agree with all the theology, but uh, my experience with them is, is really, really good. But I will tell you, Seventh-day Adventism, they like their vegetables. They're very passionate. Most of them, not all, most of them are strict vegetarians, and the conversations, and I speak from experience, the multiple conversations that I've had with them, uh, the whole premise by which they do this was completely spiritual. This is spiritual elevation. They're going back to the Garden of Eden. They're raising themselves up spiritually. They're going back to that place, so they see that they're enlightened. See, this is all about enlightenment. They're, they're enlightened on a whole different level. Just a interesting story that plays into this my wife and i a long time ago 15 years ago we went and visited a seventh-day adventist community uh we just wanted to have sa- sa- some sabbath fellowship and we went there and just to prove my point here uh the first thing that i was handed was a piece of paper and i'm like well this is going to be a visitor packet of some kind and i didn't really look at it and i you know met some nice people and sat down 
And it wasn't a visitor packet or telling me details about the church or anything like that. It was this comprehensive questionnaire about what I eat. Everything I eat and questions pertaining to meat. Do I eat meat? And, and it's asking in very various different ways. That was the first thing that I was handed to. I mean, when I say they take their veggies seriously, that's not a joke. In fact, the second week, we went back the following week, and I'll never forget this. It was so funny. I had a good laugh about this with, with my wife after the fact. But we got invited to a potluck afterward. And this is the second week. And uh, just all this food. And, and I must have had a confused look or a, a very bothered look on my face. Because as I peered out to look at this buffet of food, you know, I'm scouring that. A lady came up to me, whispering, do you like meat? And it was just, you know, because I'm here, I must have that look of where, like a carnivore, where's the meat? <laughs> and, and I said, I do. I, I like meat very, very much. She goes, kid you not, she literally puts her hands up. She goes, it's okay, because I like meat too. And so, it was priceless, okay? And so not every Seventh-day Adventist is meat, but when you're having to whisper in your own community that you eat meat and you like it, yeah, this is exactly what Paul is dealing with. This is exactly, it's just the bottom line is, is this was an issue in Paul's day and, and, and the passion behind it. You guys need to understand, it was something very, very real, all right, so I want to I want to take this into a different epistle right now. Before we're gonna we're gonna go back to Romans, but I want to take this because I want to build upon this. Uh, this was an issue that Paul had to deal with with Timothy. He says in First Timothy chapter four verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now listen to this. Forbidding to marry and what? Commanding to abstain from foods. Now what he's referring to is explicitly meat. This is what he, and because the groups that were alive in that day, this is exactly what they, what they bought into. See, uh, sex of Nazarenes, they actually disdain marriage. Oh, and they were vegetarians. I mean, these groups existed, and I, you need to see the historical context. This was a real issue of the day. And it wasn't a personal preference that I'm fine with you eating meat, I'm going to eat vegetables. No, it was spiritual. We need to do this. There's spiritual conviction here. And we're not acknowledging the truth of the gospel unless we partake of this. And this is what, he's, what Paul is dealing with with Timothy. He's warning Timothy, don't allow these people to go. Go forth. But they're going forth and they're, they're forbidding to marry, which God has ordained. They're forbidding to command to abstain from foods, foods that God ordained. And proof of this, just look at the next statement, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now I ask you, now pay close attention, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now we got to go back to the creation. Now we got to go back to the Torah. Because how do I determine what foods God created to be received? The Torah. That's how 
We know we got to go back and see what did God create? I got to go back to Leviticus 11. I need to go to Deuteronomy 14. I need to go to Leviticus 17. I need to go to Exodus chapter 21, 22, and 23. I need to go to Deuteronomy 12. Because it all talks about what God created to be received with thanksgiving. Oh, interesting. Then it goes on. By those who believe and know the truth. They know the truth. Psalm 119, your law, your Torah is truth. This is where we go. For every creature of God is good. He's not saying swine is good. We go back to the Torah, this resource, but all the meat that he has created for us to be received, which was established on the testimony of two, it had to have split hooves and it had to chew the cud. Or if it's in the sea, it had to have fins and scales. He's the creator. This is the way he created it. And so he established this on the testimony too. We could do that. We could, we could make that recognition. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be received, refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God. Food is sanctified. It has been set apart by his word, the Torah, and prayer, which is thanksgiving. And it's so awesome to see, you know, how Judaism today is saying their prayers and actually saying it not just before, but after. The primary blessing is it just, it's not just before, but it's also after, lest we forget the blessing of God. And do, that kind of gets into Deuteronomy 8. All this to say, I'm just giving you a historical context here. This is the type of activity that Paul is dealing with in Romans 14. Receive, now with with our understanding, let's go back and read this now. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. In other words, he's warning you, the strong, those who are strong in the faith, they know that they can eat meat. Don't be passing judgment on the weaker brother in the faith. Don't do it. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. This is critical groundwork for keeping the peace within the faith, ensuring that the weak are not pushed out because of these convictions, which could happen. And I'm going to tell you, when you actually understand the historical backdrop, and then you listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, what a masterful commentary. What masterful admonishment to protect the church in Rome and elsewhere as well. Now he goes on. So with this backdrop, he goes on in verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person. Now, here's where we get into the passage of today. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6. For he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. So here we come to the passage in question. Everything we looked at, though, so far... The beginning of this con, it's all about food. The very basis by which Paul enters into this, this, this statement was coming from food. 
Pure and simple. So with that in mind, what does Paul mean here in regard to observance of days and not observance of days? Well, Paul actually does something here. There's a particular writing style or particular teaching style that he employs to convey his point. And it's a method where you make a statement and then you immediately make another statement. It's the same statement, simply just using different verbiage. Same exact statement. He makes identical statements back to back, utilizing different verbiage. And the purpose of that is for emphasis, which is very traditionally Jewish. You'll see Yeshua doing it all the time. It's very Jewish methodology of teaching. So it's for emphasis, but not just that clarity. Clarity and understanding to give us the true understanding. For example, here in verse 6, he says, pay close attention. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he doesn't observe it. Now, listen to what he says immediately after. He who eats, eats to the Lord. What did he just get? He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. Then he comes down, he says, he who eats, eats to the Lord. But then he continues, and for he gives God thanks, and then he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat. Well, what did he just say? He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. It's the exact same statement using different terminology. And when you see this for what it is, you realize exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about food. In fact, the whole chapter is about food. You notice, again, there is nothing to say about the Shabbat, about a holy day, about the seventh day. It doesn't exist. Now, some might ask, well, Daniel, okay, you say this passage is about food. It still doesn't make sense. Why is he talking about observing a day or not observing the day? How does that pertain to food? It actually makes perfect sense when you realize that he's talking about fasting. Perfect sense. Something, mind you, that was an integral part of the faith. When a person is fasting, they've chosen to not eat to the Lord because they're observing the day unto him. Okay? They've made a decision to set a time aside, to seek him, to petition him, to starve their flesh by abstaining from food and water. And given the fact that Paul is having to address this issue about food and the conflict that exists between those uh, who believed they could eat meat and those who didn't believe they could eat meat, understand, this makes perfect sense for him to address this issue. Why wouldn't he? If you're dealing with the issues of the day and the conflicts regarding food, why would you not address this at this moment? Well, you would. And he did, which is, you know, I think is important to note. This was an issue of the day. So most people don't realize fasting was an issue during Paul's day. Yes, very much so. There was judgment being passed across the aisles in regard to fasting. Just as what we dealt with at the beginning of Romans chapter 14. There's judgment being passed across the aisles. Let me show you. Let me give you an example of this. And Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of Yochanan came to Yeshua saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now think about what's happening here. The disciples are John, hey, we're fasting, and we're looking at your disciples. Oh, and they're eating. 
That ain't right. If we're going to suffer, they should be suffering. I mean, just think of this concept. What, but what is happening? They are passing judgment upon the disciples of Yeshua. Fasting was an issue, even in the first century. But let me take it a step further and show you just how controversial this topic really was in the early church. I want to take you to that early church document known as the Didache. And there it has a very interesting statement about fasting. And it's a statement of judgment. This is what it says. But let not your fast be with the hypocrites. For they fast on the second and fifth days, meaning Monday and Thursday of the week. Who is the term being used for hypocrites here? It's the parashim. It's the Pharisees. This is a statement going against the Pharisees. And don't fast with the Pharisees. Don't fast with the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday. But do ye fast on the fourth day, Wednesday, and the preparation. So Wednesday and Friday is the time to fast. Isn't that interesting? Total judgment coming out. Now, I'm just going to tell you, this, this is a great time just to share with you do I have reservations about the D.K.? Yes, I do. About it really being Holy Spirit inspired that every word, every jot and tittle is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, I do. And this is one of the reasons why when you read this is what did we just learn from Paul? We're not supposed to be casting judgment. If someone observes the day, they're observing it to the Lord. If he chooses not to observe the day to the Lord, he hasn't observed it. That philosophy is not being applied here. Now, keep in mind that the DDK, the actual title of it, is the 12 apostles to the nations. I mean, that, that's the title. And you look at that, well, I, and again, I have reservations. But man, if you want your book to be read in the first century, in the coming centuries, the second, third, fourth centuries, put the apostles' name on it. That makes a lot of sense so that it takes root, so that it has an impact. But I do have a problem with saying fasting with the hypocrites that, okay, we're going to separate ourselves from the, from the Pharisees, from the Jews on the common days that they fast. And you are going to fast on Wednesday and Friday. It doesn't follow this, this rule. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He does not observe the day to the Lord. He does not observe it. Pure and simple. And the point I'm making here is that fasting was a serious issue of the day. It was a judgmental thing. It was people were passing judgment. Yes, Paul should address it right here because he's dealing with food. It makes perfect sense. The passage is all about fasting. The chapter is all about food. Can't say it enough. To further prove this, look at what Paul goes on to say as we drop down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Yeshua that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, keep in mind, to a vegetarian, especially these vegetarians that we're talking about, whether they're part of the Nasareans, whether they're part of the Ebionites, uh, in, in the coming groups to follow with Gnostics and so forth, they considered meat to be unclean. They did. Moving on to verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved, what? Because of your food. Notice he doesn't say, oh, because of your Sabbath observance. Because it's not about the Sabbath. It's not about keeping the feast 
holy. It's not about a holy day period. This is all about food. So if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Mashiach died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Moving to verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, both of which are permissible according to Torah, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. So understand the conclusion here in looking at this is you want to be careful. If you're strong in the faith and you know that you can eat meat and you come up against somebody, let's just say, to take a modern day example, Seventh-day Adventist has extremely strong convictions on vegetables. Be careful how you handle that situation. Do not destroy your brother for whom Yeshua died. Be very, very careful. As you look at this, he who doubts is condemned if he eats. In other words, you're not going to want to force meat down his throat when he's looking at this going, it's completely unclean. And if I do this, I have this conscience that gets seared and I feel convicted. See, the thing is, is the stronger to bear with the weak, and eventually they come up into the faith and they recognize it's not that big of a deal. However, let me say this. There are vegetarians uh, here today, probably. This is not an issue. It's, the reason they're vegetarians is not for spiritual conviction. It's just a choice that they've decided to make, they, whether they don't like meat or whether they don't want to get pumped full of hormones that the cows are getting pumped full of. Okay, I mean, there's 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 difference in a distinction. I want to make that distinction before I get out of here because I don't want this to sound like a vegetarian bashing. That's not what this is. All right. But what this is, is to prove a point. Go home, read Romans 14. We didn't cover the entire chapter, we covered most of it. The chapter has nothing to do with the Shabbat that you would have to take your confirmation bias to the table to draw that out of there has everything to do with food, has everything to do with uh, meatitarians versus vegetarians, and has everything to do with not casting judgment upon someone because they decide to observe a day because they decide to fast. And if you're fasting, you shouldn't be going around saying, you know, you should be fasting with me. You shouldn't be passing that judgment. This is, the, this is simply what Paul is talking about. He's addressing this. He wants unity within the body. In closing, I want to close with this idea And I want to circle back to what I opened up with. And that is the concept that, what a coincidence. I find that these things that we're having to deal with in regard to the Shabbat and all the evidence that uh, people are typically bringing forward, typically what you will find is the ultimate argument centers around the Apostle Paul. And here's why it's important to make that note. is because of what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand. Now, the first thing you need to recognize, Peter warns you that, listen, as you enter into the epistles of Paul, you better be warned, you better understand that some of the things that he writes, they're difficult. 
to understand, which means I would approach them very, very carefully. And they should be. But then he goes on and says, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Peter prophesied what men and women would do to the epistles of Paul. And it's interesting, the untaught and unstable. I ask you, untaught in what? The Torah. Untaught in the Tanakh. They are untaught. And so it's natural for this confirmation. And it's very easy for a confirmation bias to take hold of going through and start reading through the New Testament and start falling apart. Amen? You guys can rise. We're going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. And we all say, today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh and we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight and we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Music team can come up. We're going to bow our heads in prayer. Abba, Father, we give you praise and glory. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the way, the truth, and the life, the Messiah, Yeshua. And uh, Lord, we take special time out on on this Shabbat to pray for our nation. And... uh, There's a lot of fear and doubt. Lord, I just, this is a tough prayer to even even consider. This is a tough prayer to even go down because knowing the atrocities that have been committed in this nation, the sins, and your word says that you will bring judgment against the nation if it continues in its sin by its persistent unfaithfulness. You will bring judgment. Lord, I pray, <laughs> I pray that you hold off judgment. Hold off. Give us a chance to, 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 to spread the truth, to spread righteousness, and to take this sick nation, which is very sick and ill, with immorality, with ungodliness, with murder, with hatred, with idolatry and covetousness. This nation is drowning in its sins, Lord. And we petition, Lord, hold off, Judge. Give us, give us more time, Lord. I pray that you stir a revival in the churches across this nation, Lord. Stir a revival in the hearts of the people because I know the health of this nation, it begins with your body. It begins with your people. Have mercy, Lord, and uh, we confess our sins, Lord. Uh, we are ashamed. 
We're ashamed of, of how we have behaved. We're ashamed of the legislation that has been passed uh, in times past, uh, murder, murdering innocent children. These things are very, very difficult. And Lord, I fear that there are too many people who have decided to put their trust in this election. And they are putting their trust in man. And your word says, cursed is the man who, puts, uh, who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. This election does not establish who we are. And this, this nation is not our home. Our citizenship is in Shemaim. It is in heaven. And Lord, I just pray that the believers get hearts of courage and redirect their focus to be kingdom-minded, to know that our citizenship is with you. It is not here, and we will not trust in an election, and we will not trust in man to save us. There is only one deliverer, and that is you, Lord Yeshua. You're the redeemer. We just pray that you pour out your spirit, Lord. Raise up your men and women. Let them speak truth. Let them speak conviction. Let them speak conviction. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen.